Leadership Next is powered by the folks at Deloitte, who, like me, are super focused on how CEOs can lead in the context of disruption and devolving societal expectations. Doctors, nurses, and staff are on the front lines of the crisis. And many of these health professionals say they're lacking some of the most basic essentials to protect themselves, such as gloves and masks. Some medical professionals now fear that vital protective equipment could run out in a matter of days. The World Health Organization has called for international cooperation and to refrain from stockpiling masks, claiming that medical workers are facing shortages of protective equipment. But until they reach the hospitals, medical workers are concerned. We have to get personal protective equipment because we're going to lose our workforce if we don't. I'm Alan Murray. This is Leadership Next, the podcast about the changing rules of business leadership. Can business rise to the challenge of the coronavirus pandemic? That is the burning question of our times. Will there be enough face masks and gowns for medical workers? Will there be enough ventilators for the desperately ill? How about better and faster tests to track the spread of the virus? or new therapies to treat the most vulnerable? And ultimately, when will we have a vaccine to protect the population in the future? Our guests on the podcast today are two CEOs who have been working overtime on exactly those issues. In a minute, we're going to hear from Stan Bergman, the CEO of Henry Schein, which recently announced approval of a new test for the virus that has a turnaround time of 10 or 15 minutes. That could be a real game changer. But first... We're going to talk to Alex Gorski, CEO of Johnson & Johnson, which just announced that it has selected an approach for a vaccine and that it is going to begin simultaneous testing and manufacturing in hopes of being able to roll out that vaccine early next year. So, Alex, very big news on the vaccine front. Tell us how you were able to do this so quickly. In many ways, Alan, this is a it's an interesting story of R&D, a long-term outlook regarding research and development, and and the risk and reward of research and development. So we purchased a vaccine platform about 10 years ago that originally didn't meet all of, you would say, the acquisition goals. However, the underlying technologies, both in terms of the vectors and the science associated with that, as well as the production capabilities, turned out to have much broader application than we anticipated. So in this case, we've been working in the vaccine space in areas like SARS, like Ebola, like HIV, like RSV, uh, now for over a decade. And that experience has shown us that the early testing that you do with vaccines, both in vitro as well as in vivo, with animal models as well, can be quite predictive of what you would expect to see eventually in your human models. And in this case, since we have already used this, for example, with Ebola, and I believe about 50,000 doses and patients already, we know, for example, that we have a safe platform, both in the elderly as well as in younger children. Then it becomes an issue of, can you ensure that you have an effective vector that's actually going to develop antibodies and be able to work against the Corona-19 virus. And based upon our preliminary, again, early data, again, we feel confident that we have got a very good candidate, as we announced. And 
That's why we're in a position now to do this partnership with BARDA, where jointly we'll be doing over a billion dollars in terms of research and development, as well as production. And it's public record, about half of that is from BARDA and, and the other half is from J&J. And so what we have to do in this case, Alan, is while we're doing, again, some other tests on the vaccine, for us to have a meaningful or an impact in a meaningful period of time at risk, we've got to start ramping up our production. And so that's what we're in the process of doing right now, both in Europe as well as the United States and likely more countries to follow uh, so that we have adequate clinical as well as adequate what we call commercial supply. And we'll start our first in human studies in September. We should be able to do an interim analysis of that late this year at the latest early next year. And we will then use that data to ultimately determine, depending on what the course of the disease is at that time, and work with regulators, obviously, to determine if there should be what would be like emergency approval and utilization uh, of the vaccine at that time. And we would have sufficient quantities, we believe, by second quarter to be talking in the hundreds of millions with a goal of having a billion by the end of 2021. Wow. Yeah. So let me make sure I uh, understand that there's this is a possibility, depending on how the testing goes, that yes. in the first quarter you could be using it for high risk people. In the second quarter, you could extend it to hundreds of millions of people. And by the end of the year, you could have vaccinated a billion people. Yeah, you know, I would err on the conservative side there, Alan. I would say by the, you know, early in Q2, we should be able to be in a position where, again, depending on the, the nature of the emergency, it could start being used. And through the second quarter, we could be in a position to have hundreds. And the only reason I put that caveat on is one of the things that we have to understand through the testing is exactly what the yield will be from this, again, very unique manufacturing process and like how many doses, that kind of thing uh, are utilized. But we're quite confident that there would be hundreds of millions of doses available by Q2. And do you have a clear sense of what the strategy should look like uh, around how to utilize the vaccine before it's at full scale? So a couple of things. Number one, our goal is to make sure that this is accessible and affordable for patients, clearly in the United States, but around the world. And we will work diligently with healthcare authorities to determine, look, where are the hotspots? Who's at greatest risk? You know, what portion of the population? There's a lot of information that we're going to have to gather between now and then you know, regarding who's been exposed to the virus, who may have already developed antibodies that could be effective in the short term, you know, versus a vaccine, which tends to provide protection much longer term. We'll have to continue to see if the virus continues to evolve to a significant degree. Some of the early indications are that it's not mutating in a major way, but we still have to learn more about those things. And I think those will all be factors that will be taken into consideration on exactly where and how this would be distributed. Yep. You've worked with me a long time. I'm not a high, you know, I don't use a lot of hyperbole, but this is a moonshot for us because this can usually take five or seven years. You know, we are working extensively with our scientists, with our supply chain, real time. We're working with regulators, with BARDA, with CEPI. BARDA is the US 
Organization for Pandemic Preparedness and Vaccines. CEPI is the organization in Europe. We're working, you know, with a number of different agencies to say, what can we do to not compromise safety, but do everything we can to accelerate this vaccine so that, frankly, we have options depending on how it runs its course. And how is this going to work? Are there, this is a moonshot, but are there going to be multiple moonshots going on at the same time? Are the authorities going to have to bear down on one of the moonshots at one point? What's the process for deciding it? Well, there are dozens of these taking place. And and what I would say is we're going to have to do a little bit of both in that For example, BARDA has decided to partner with Johnson & Johnson, I'm sure because they have confidence in the capabilities and the technology that we're actually bringing forward. That being said, and so they're having that partnership, the resources, doing everything we can to accelerate it, I think is, is frankly good news. At the same time, this is not about a competition between companies. This is a competition against Corona. I think the fact that there are likely dozens of efforts out there ranging from uh, there are attenuated live virus approaches, there are vector approaches, there are peptide approaches, there's DNA, RNA approaches, there's a vector approach like we're using. Taking multiple shots on goal increases my confidence. And by the way, each one of those different technologies has their what I would call risks associated with it in terms of if it works, can you produce large quantities? Is it something that can be easily administered with the patient? Is it something where, you know, we can have a good understanding of the safety based upon its use before? So there's a lot of those kind of factors that will be, I'm sure, taken into consideration. Yep. And let me ask you, Alex, let's say this works. And so we have an effective vaccine in the second quarter. For businesses like Johnson & Johnson and other businesses, what happens between now and then? Until we have a vaccine, how do we get the economy back up and running and how do we manage for the many months in between? I think the only thing that's going to give us confidence and certainty is knowing ultimately that this virus can be contained. And so this is going to be part of a multifaceted effort. Frankly, Alan, that in the near term, We've got to continue to emphasize hygiene, quarantine, social distancing to stop people from spreading this virus in the first place. The next major area of of focus is what's taking place on the hospital system. And there, it's about making sure the doctors, the nurses, the frontline workers have got the testing kits, have got the PPE, have got the ventilators, have got the number of beds they need and the protocols, you know, as I'm sure you heard in talking to other CEOs, you know, even last week when I was speaking with hospital CEOs, the delay in test results was resulting in an overconsumption of PPE because if they assumed somebody was in fact infected, they would immediately jump to the most conservative protocol regarding gowning, masking, procedures, and in some cases, even the utilization of healthcare workers. But, you know, making sure that only the patients who are necessary are being put into the CCU, ICU, are being put on the ventilators, and frankly, that they can direct the healthcare resources where it's going to make the biggest difference. The next big area, of course, is a medicine or near-term therapeutic. And there, 
I would say there's about, frankly, there are dozens of initiatives right now, but those that are in the front would be the antiviral approach, remdesivir, along with others, where you actually stop the virus from replicating. And look, I'm, I am confident that in the coming months, one or a combination of these is going to prove to be effective. And it will help, you know, in the near term. And then, of course, beyond that, it's going to be how do we get that vaccine out there? So the way that I would see this playing out, Alan, is, you know, how do we get through this fat part of the curve right now? If cases go into the summer and the fall, we're then able to hopefully use a therapeutic, a medicine to help slow down or stop it. And then as we get into the season the following year, hopefully then we will have one or more vaccines that could be used to stop this from happening in its entirety. Alex, thanks for taking the time. That's extremely helpful. Congratulations. It's really good to know that there's real progress being made in this area. There is a lot more work to do, Alan, but uh, we're going to beat this thing. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you. I'm here with Fortune's superstar health reporter, Sai Mukherjee. He's the author of the Brainstorm Health Newsletter, and he's been following these issues very, very closely. Sai, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Alan. Let's start with this announcement from Johnson & Johnson about a vaccine. Is that a big deal? This is a, a very big deal. I think you're already seeing how the market's been reacting to it. Their shares are up something like 7% for one of the largest biopharmaceutical companies in the entire world. And the reason it's such a big deal is because this entire development process for vaccines, it usually takes anywhere from like three to seven years. And they're basically saying that they might be able to get an emergency use authorization for their own experimental vaccine by early 2021. That's really, really remarkable. The other thing, side that I thought was fascinating was they're talking about ramping up manufacturing capacity even before the vaccine gets approved so that they have the capacity in place if it does get approved. That's an extraordinary action, isn't it? Yes, it really is. And it's kind of what's necessary at this point. I think what we're seeing is that private firms are learning from what the CDC kind of messed up at the beginning of this process. And they're realizing that, hey, if you don't start preparing for this possibility as soon as possible, then you're not going to be able to effectively deploy whatever product you eventually make. So you have to think a few steps ahead in this whole supply chain process in order to make it an effective response. Yeah, and I think the other thing that people have been kind of slow to recognize is that until there is a vaccine, we're probably not going to get back to anything approaching normal in terms of the economy and society and how it openness with which it operates. Yeah, definitely not. And that's why this is going to be a multi-pronged approach. In the meantime, what we need is we're going to need treatments to actually treat the disease itself. That way we can actually slow sort of the spread We can make people feel better and hopefully create a cure. And that buys us time to actually create this vaccine, which we're then going to have to deploy on a mass basis across society. 
Uh, Sai, I know you've been doing some deep reporting on this testing mess. Can you give us a little bit of the backstory? I mean, we basically lost the whole month of February when we should have been testing and we were only testing at a very small scale. Yeah. So there were a lot of things that went wrong. A lot of the public health officials who I've spoken with have said that there's going to have to be an accounting and an auditing for this once we're kind of over the hump. But uh, the, the long and short of it is that the CDC's test which was a, a very complicated test and, and not the same test that so many other countries were already using, it just failed because of a problem with something called a reagent, which is part of how you do this testing. So they then realized, okay, our test is obviously not working. We need to fix it. But in the meantime, this crisis is only going to get worse and worse. So we have to employ the help of state health departments as well as private firms. And that's how we've kind of gotten to this point. Now, there's a couple different kinds of tests out there and the science behind it is complicated, but basically the main sorts of tests that are usually used for this is something called a PCR chain test. And those are the kind of things that say Roche's diagnostic for this utilizes. One of the biggest developments that happened just over this weekend is actually Abbott, Abbott Laboratories. They have developed a point of care test which can deliver a positive result within five minutes and a negative result within 13 minutes. And what makes it very unique is that it can basically be done at urgent care clinics and hospitals basically anywhere where you can do a test because of the type of test that it is. That's really different from a lot of the other tests that have been developed because with those other tests, you might have to send it to a professional laboratory in order to get the results. So that's one of the most exciting developments we've seen in a while. Sai, that's basically what Henry Schein has announced they've developed as well, right? It's a point of care test where you can get results in 15 minutes or so? Yes, yes. But their test is also different from this Abbott test because th their test didn't even require an emergency use authorization from the FDA because it is what's called a serology test. That's a blood test. So it doesn't require taking nasal and mouth swabs, which you then have to send to a lab. So that's one of the unique things about their test. Why is testing so important at this point? I mean, either you have the disease or you don't have the disease. Why are people focusing so much on testing? Well, the testing is important because it helps us determine a lot of things like who is most at risk. What is the actual mortality rate? If you don't test, you don't know those fundamental things, and it's harder to create a response to this crisis. So we're now joined by Stan Bergman, who is the CEO of Henry Schein, has been the CEO of Henry Schein for three decades now. Historically, Henry Schein has been known as a distributor of supplies to dental professionals, but understands leadership, it has really transformed itself into a technology powerhouse. And Stan himself has become a pioneer in the fight against diseases and pandemics. Last week, Shine announced approval of a new COVID-19 test that they're rolling out this week to doctors and hospitals. The test provides rapid results with a 10 to 15 minute turnaround time. And that's a critical development in helping to flatten the curve of this disease. Stan, Thank you for joining us. Let's talk first about testing. So, Alan, the way the test in general 
in layman's terms, there are two very broad categories of tests. The one is lab tests where a specimen is taken and sent to a centralized lab and the results are provided to the physician, to the patient within a few days. Depends on the test. Some could be shorter response time and others longer time. Then there are the point of care tests, the rapid tests, is the second broad category. This is the category that Henry Schein is involved with because we are supplying these tests to physicians. So, for example, the flu test. Today, you go to the physician's office and you can get a rapid flu test. You can do this for diabetes as well and many, many other areas of healthcare that need to be diagnosed. Up to now, or up till recently, the focus was primarily on these lab tests. So about a month ago, our chief strategic officer, Mark Malotek, did a review from around the world looking for potential suppliers of these point-of-care tests. And he identified four, one in Korea, one in China, and two in the U.S., so Mark has been working with our team to bring these products to the United States and get regulatory approval. Until a few days ago, or actually almost a week ago, the focus, as I said, was on these traditional lab tests, but the FDA has provided quickly, in a remarkably quick way, under the leadership of Dr. Hahn and his deputy, Dr. Shah, a methodology for bringing these products to market quickly. Henry Schein, Plus, I'm sure others are working on this to bring these products to the United States and have them up and running quickly. This is different. Point of care is different to a test that can be done at home where swab is taken and the swab is sent to a lab. You don't get the results immediately. The tests that we're referring to are the tests where you can get a result within a few minutes, maybe 15, 10, 15 minutes, or even within three or four hours. That's what we need right away. Yeah. Do you test yourself at home or you do it in a doctor's office? Well, these tests may eventually be available for self-testing. But at the moment, at least the advice we're receiving from our public health experts is that these tests should be administered by a healthcare professional, certainly a nurse or a doctor. But there is a possibility that is being reviewed, and I'm sure others have done a lot more research than we have, that a pharmacist could do this. But for the moment, we are recommending be administered by a nurse or a physician or somebody in that category. How did the U.S. get this so wrong? I mean, South Korea had tested tens of thousands of people while we were still in the hundreds. Yeah. Uh, Alan, I don't think that's something we should address now. We should address that in the future. But all I can say is the pandemic supply chain network has been working with agencies around the world for five years now to draw attention of governments around the world to the importance of having supply chain capabilities for these disposable products and having them available from multiple manufacturers around the world. Economics drove it. People went to the lowest price. That's China. The Chinese are doing a heroic job now in getting their production back again. But I think we need to have some kind of diversification of sourcing of these products. Why that wasn't addressed, I don't know. We will find out. But it's generally related to people's short memories. I'm here with Joe Yukazoglu, who is the CEO of Deloitte U.S. and had the good sense to sponsor this podcast. Thanks for being with us and thanks for your support. Thanks, Alan. Pleasure to be here. So, Joe, business leadership used to be about setting strategy in the C-suite and then giving orders to everybody down the line, telling them what they need to do to implement the strategy. But today, things are moving too fast for that kind of a top-down approach. How do you be an effective leader in that kind of rapidly changing 
changing environment. You hit the nail on the head, Alan. We've actually given a lot of thought recently to adjusting our own leadership frameworks in terms of the attributes that are necessary to serve as an effective enterprise leader. In this environment, the longstanding hierarchical pyramid with orders coming down from the top simply cannot effectively deal with the pace of change. Being a great leader in this environment requires a lot of listening, empowering one's people, setting the tone for a culture of innovation and strategic risk-taking, because at the end of the day, you can't be involved in every interaction with your customers, with your employees, with your regulators. You have to instill in your professionals a sense of values to drive the way in which they'll make those on-the-spot decisions on behalf of the organization. Thank you, Joe. Alan, it's a real pleasure. Welcome back to Leadership Next. The other critical area where Stan Bergman has been truly visionary is in the creation of the Pandemic Supply Chain Network, a loose affiliation of companies and organizations that were set up to mobilize in times like these to get critical equipment into the hands of healthcare workers. Stan, tell us a little more about how that developed. Henry Schein is the largest provider of products to dentists and office-based healthcare practitioners, including many clinics around the world. So we are, have played an important role in infection control really since the AIDS crisis in the mid-80s, uh, leading to developing a protocol for dentists to sterilize their office and likewise in the physician space. So we have been talking to Henry Schein about this, whether it's been in healthcare professional forums or at the World Economic Forum for about a decade and a half. We became concerned about the supply chain and the risk of a pandemic. And so this led to us talking about it and eventually encouraging multilateral organizations to work with us on establishing the Pandemic Supply Chain Network, which is not a formal organization. It's a loose group of public health organizations, multilateral organizations, and the private sector. And from that area, from that group, we became more and more concerned about challenges. So Stan, how quickly did you become aware that we were going to have a coronavirus problem? We became at Henry Schein, the first time we became aware of corona in a significant way was at Davos this past January and at a press conference that was essentially public health people and people from China happened to be there. My wife, who's a pulmonologist, and I sat in on that press conference. And that's the first time we became aware and concerned. And Alan, we have said this at Henry Schein for a long, long time. Passports and visas are not going to control infection control and will never stop a pandemic. Countries need to collaborate. And yes, it may be some African country where Ebola occurred very far from us. But we need to take this very seriously because these pandemics spread. And in the case of the Ebola, at that time, the U.S. government, together with a number of other governments, sent cleaning supplies and other kind of protective devices to Africa very quickly and contained the disease. So this is how we became aware of the coronavirus. But also, this is what we've been talking about for a long time, which is you cannot stop a pandemic from spreading unless you have the appropriate PPE products in the hands of everyone, including countries that do not have the ability to get these products. 
And Stan, talking about those personal protection products, are we doing enough to protect our healthcare workers who are on the front line of this battle? I cannot answer that question, Alan, from a public health point of view. But from a Henry Schein point of view, what we are recommending is that these tests, these uh, point-of-care tests, be made available quickly to public health workers so that if I'm working in a big hospital and I'm a healthcare worker in that hospital, I want to be tested and I have the right to be tested. Don't ask me to go and take care of patients if I've not been tested and it's not right to the patient to expose the patient to a healthcare worker that has not been tested. So from a priority point of view, I think we need to make sure that we have point-to-care testing quickly available for the healthcare worker to protect the healthcare worker and to protect the patient. So tell us where things stand. I mean, do we have the supplies we need for this pandemic? Uh, People talk about the need for respirators, the need for ventilators in hospitals, uh, basic sterilizing equipment, uh, hand washing, liquid, et cetera. How are we doing on the supply chain for the coronavirus? Yeah, so if we deal with the PPE products, the disposable part, for example, gloves and masks and gowns, the majority of these products Certainly the gowns and the masks come from China and gloves from Malaysia. So at the moment, it does not seem to be an issue with the supply chain from Malaysia. That could change, of course. But the supply chain from China froze. The government took action to restrict export of these products from a point of view of restricting contact, social distancing. China seems to have responded very, very quickly So they will have product available, we think, in the not-too-distant future. Having said that, we do not have capacity in the U.S., and I think we need to develop that capacity very quickly because other countries have also restricted the movement of these products. How quickly can you develop uh, that capacity? It will not be that quick. Uh, We are working with suppliers to perhaps create factories in the U.S., for example, for masks. The problem, Alan, with that is, and we've been through this before, is during the cycle of the need for these products, whether it was during the Ebola period, the SARS period, or for that matter, now the Corona period, what happens is there's a spike in demand and then a reduction. It's less expensive to produce these products in China for many reasons, but in the US it's more. So What happened in the previous pandemic or the previous cycle, infectious disease cycle, factories were brought up and then when the scare disappeared, the demand went down and several of these factories actually went bankrupt. So what we need is the support from government to ensure that we have a continuous supply chain of masks, for example, during times when masks are needed and in times when masks are in less demand and people go to the lowest price source. And in this case, Mass China. Yeah, I assume you're talking to the uh, government in Washington about how to provide the resources necessary to make this work. We have spoken to many, many people in the government, and we're working on this. Having said that, the focus seems to be right now on the immediate need for product. And yes, we will get more product. And yes, not only us, Henry Schein, but others in the supply chain will get more product. It will take a little time, but What we need to do, Alan, is we need to make sure we will get through this crisis, that we don't forget the crisis, and that we ensure that we have supply chain in the United States, even if it's more expensive than the product that we can bring from abroad.
Stan, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us, and please uh, keep it up. We have some tough times ahead. Thank you. Thank you. Leadership Next is produced by Dan Sacker, edited and engineered by Nicole Vergala, and written by me, Alan Murray, and Dan Sacker. Our theme is by Jason Snell. Executive producers are Mason Cohn and Megan Arnold. Leadership Next is a production of Fortune Media. Leadership Next episodes are produced by Fortune's editorial team. The views and opinions expressed by podcast speakers and guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Deloitte or its personnel, nor does Deloitte advocate or endorse any individuals or entities featured on the episodes. 